This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 138. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. When you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Now, I hope you all had a great, fun, and most importantly, a safe Labor Day weekend. Uh, us crafts are actually taking a few days later this week uh, to go to Palm Springs. Uh, my first time <laughs> getting out of town, getting out of LA since November 2019. So I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to it, and uh, and also wish us luck. This is our first overnight with our uh, with our baby, our seven and a half month old. Then you know, let's see how she adjusts to uh, sleeping at an Airbnb and uh, and gives a uh, mom and dad a, a couple extra Z's. Uh, I'm really uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping, uh, it should, but it should be okay. So, you know, this week, uh, be sure to check out our full slate of podcasts. Uh, our theme this week actually happens to be some of the events from last week where we saw a little bit of market volatility. You know, so as much as I'd like to say that, you know, we, we don't want to pay attention to the broader markets on a daily basis, you know, especially as microcap investors. But, you know, I think it's pretty safe to say that in practice, that's extremely hard, even when things are relatively chill. So, uh, and, and I think we can all agree that right now, it, things are most definitely not chill. <laughs> so ha- having said that, on yesterday's new episode of Avoiding the Crowd with Maj Don, we discussed last week's uh, volatility. And on days like we saw, you know, how he enjoys looking at form fours and seeing what insiders are doing. So check out this episode to see why on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean at avoidingthecrowd.podbean.com. And in the upcoming episode of In the Market Trenches with Gary Reby and Eric Fure, similar theme, uh, but they asked the question and discussed whether or not price discovery is breaking down. Also, how should investors think about the fundamentals of a potential investment in times like these? Has it changed? You know, it's a great conversation that you can hear, again, also on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. We're also taking a week off from the Investors Roundtable. Uh, see my Palm Springs comment above. Uh, taking a couple of days to think of some more awesome episodes that I want to do uh, in the upcoming uh, 
months and years and forever. Uh, but, but in all seriousness, uh, thank you for watching and thank you to all our panelists for, part for participating. Uh, this show is a ton of fun and I'm really excited to keep the train moving here. So uh, subscribe to the SNN Network YouTube channel to be notified of each new episode. That's youtube.com slash SNNWire. And very soon, as I said last week, uh, we'll be creating an audio-only uh, audio stream so you can listen to the show wherever podcasts are available. Now, for this week of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Jeff Henriksen. He is the founder and managing partner of Thorpe Abbott's Capital. Jeff and I met when, we, when he joined me on the Investors Roundtable, episode number six. We had a great time on there, and uh, it was time to highlight his investing thesis and philosophy. You know, one of the reasons I love asking and getting to know my guest backgrounds is that it usually is an indicator into their investing worldview. And Jeff's story has a very interesting parallel. You know, get hyped for how Jeff's undergrad thesis about the difference in how Revolutionary War soldiers viewed their experience during the war as it was happening to 50 years later may have influenced uh, Jeff's focus on mispricing and how creating a system around finding those opportunities. Just, hey, there's, there's some interesting parallels there. So thank you again for tuning into episode 138 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Jeff Henriksen. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. And joining me right now is a very special guest, you know, someone who uh, I actually normally for the Investors Roundtable, usually I've interviewed them first and then we have them on the podcast, but we did a little, we did a little backwards. You know, we did the roundtable first and now they're coming on the podcast because uh, I thought this would be a really fun chat to, uh, you know, to do. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Jeff Henriksen. He is the founder and managing partner at Thorpe Abbott's Capital. Jeff, welcome. How you doing? Robert, great to be with you, pal. Thanks for uh, having me on. I appreciate it. No, it's, it's my pleasure. I mean, look, I wanted to make you feel more at home. So I, uh, I, I, I grabbed a picture from your website. This is Charlottesville, right? No, this yeah, no, that's, that's Oxford, man. You've got, you grabbed the, you it's grabbed Oxford. the, yeah, it's Oxford. We have two pictures on our website of cities. One is Oxford, uh, and then one is Charlottesville. So, uh, okay. um, but I'm in Charlottesville now. You can't see behind me. I'm in a conference room, but, uh, <laughs> but yes, Oxford, we, uh, you know, we're based in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia. But, uh, when I was, when I founded the firm, uh, I was actually living in Oxford um, at the time, so we uh, we actually uh, have a have a history in Oxford as well. So, uh, which I mean, look, is why I, you'll see the picture of the city on the background there. I mean, look at some of these spears. I feel like I might be. This is this looks a little like uh, Oxfordy uh, uh, in England. You know, Absolutely. I think Jerry, you know, right? Like this is this is kind of yeah. It's English it's one of a little the coolest cities in the world. Like if if any of the listeners have not been there and get a chance to go, it, it's spectacular. It's it's a really uh, uh, I guess the word would be magical place. It really is. All right. Why is it magical? Let's, let's, let's dig well, in. We're, it's we're digging in history. About... Uh, oh, okay. So I, I did my MBA there, or my executive MBA, and I was there for two years, um, mm -hmm. actually three years, because I taught uh, finance. I taught in the finance lab at Oxford for a year. And, uh, but, but living there, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're, you're just walking in the footsteps of, of so much history, of so many brilliant minds. Um, I mean, look, uh, I remember 
on several occasions having uh, dinner at the uh, Balliol College dining hall. And that's where Adam Smith was a student. So you're literally sitting there having dinner in this beautiful, gorgeous uh, Oxford dining hall. And, and that's where Adam Smith was back when, when he was just a, a, a fresher, like, like everybody is at one point. And I mean, it's just, it, you can't help but be inspired when you're in a place like that. And the people, it's a very international city. Uh, you have people from all over the world uh, that come there to study and teach. So you never uh, are lacking for great conversation. Um, it, it's very, obviously, um, we're big believers in kind of the Charlie Munger approach of being multidisciplinary in terms of how we look at things. So, uh, you know, I could go to the Oxford Union one night and, and speak to people, uh, brilliant people from a, a range of different backgrounds that, that really uh, kind of just, I think, make you more well-rounded as a person. So uh, my wife and I were there for three years, uh, three of the best years of my life. And uh, I can't wait to go back once we get past the quarantines and travel bans and all of that. I actually still have quite a few friends there. So I'm looking well, forward here's, to getting back. Here, okay. So here's my dumb question of the day or maybe the first of many. Um, and uh, I'm, I forgive me for not being an Adam Smith historian. What college is in Oxford? <laughs> Oh, sorry. So Balliol. Yeah, Balliol College. So, so Oxford. Okay. I thought yes. I heard you say that earlier. I didn't know if that was the no, name. No, yeah. So okay. for those who don't know, so Oxford <laughs> is basically uh, a collection of little bitty colleges, right? So so uh, it's, it's kind of, I guess the best way to describe it is kind of like a federalist system in the sense that you have the university uh, that, that you do all your exams through and all that. But then every, uh, but then there are, I forget the number, 40 something uh, colleges, independent colleges. And uh, they're rivals between, it's almost like Hogwarts, right? You have rivals between different houses and stuff and, and they have, uh, the rowing competition is really intense. And so Balliol is one of the oldest, I think they are maybe in a dispute with, is it Merton College on who's the oldest? They both go back and forth. And oh, Don't uh, look at me. I, I, I might have that wrong. That. I, but Balliol's me, I don't know Balliol. I'll tell you a story. I was having dinner, actually it wasn't in uh, Balliol, it was in, I believe, um, Trinity College. And uh, I was with this professor uh, and he points to this old, because all these colleges have pictures of people on the walls, like all these famous people. And he points to this picture and he's like, well, you're an American, you know who that fellow is? And I look up and it's some old British guy, you know, they all look you know, they, with the beards and everything. I, I might have no idea. Wigs and yet. And he's like, oh, that's the chap that lost us the colonies. And uh, apparently this was the person who was in charge of overseeing the, the colonies at the time that we rebelled and, and got our independence. So uh, he was, the professor was a little bitter about that. So, but always, never a dull moment. All these, all these years later, I mean, come on, get over it. I know, right? right? It's like, come Jeez, on. Jeez, come on. We got a lot more things to worry about right now. So right, anyway, right. <laughs> so anyways, so, you know, this is actually a perfect segue to, you know, find, getting really your full background. I mean, yeah. you know, what, what, when would you say your, your passion for investing then began? Was it, was it prior to your, your experience at Balliol or? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's hear it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, uh, so I, I probably came to investing later than a lot of people do. I, I, I always wish that I could answer that question. Like a lot of investors are like, oh yeah, I was interested in investing when I was in sixth grade uh, and, and read security analysis, you know, in junior high and all this stuff. I, I wasn't like that. I, when I was in uh, junior high, high school, I was, uh, you know, I was like anybody. I was just, I got into a lot of trouble and um, and probably stressed my parents out more than was deserving of, for them to be stressed out about. And, uh, and then I went to, to college, University of Colorado, Boulder. Um, I studied history as an undergraduate. Uh, I'm a big history buff. At one point I was gonna, I think at the time I was planning on going to law school, uh, but uh, I ended up 
after I graduated, I, I had a bunch of different jobs, uh, sales uh, kind of jobs. I lived in LA for a little bit and uh, I had a job at a production company, just kind of answering phones and doing all kind of random stuff that, that, that people do when they're trying to break into the entertainment business. So I was out there for a while doing that and actually ended up back in graduate school at one point um, to study history. And then I kind of decided I didn't want to do that. And so I kind of bounced around throughout uh, my twenties, not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, and then, you know, my dad had always been, uh, he, he was an accountant and a, and a, 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 by trade and, and he was a treasurer of a commercial real estate development firm in Houston, my, you know, when I was growing up and he was uh, always a big investor. And, and so, you know, I think it'd been 2006 or seven, it was prior to the financial crisis, I was trying to find, find out what I want to do with my life. And he was like, well, you ever think about investing? And he's like, you know, this is something I love, I'm passionate about, and maybe the apple didn't fall too far from the tree. And so I said, yeah, that'd, that'd be great. So I started going, uh, working with him. And I'd go over to his house uh, several times a week and just learn all about the stock market. And, uh, and I mean, we started out super simple, like, you know, what, what, is, what is a stock? What does is, what is, what is equity in a company represent? All this stuff. And, and I just loved it. I, I became, um, absolutely obsessed and, uh, and I just poured myself into it. And it was one of those things I just, I, I, sometimes when you like learn something, it's just like, it comes really easily to you and you enjoy it. It doesn't seem like a lot of effort. You're yep. just, and that's how it was for me. And, and, and I realized that maybe that's probably what I should have done my entire life. Uh, and, but you know, I, better late than never. Right. And so I started working with my dad. I went back, got a master's in finance from the university of Colorado. Uh, Denver campus actually, because uh, Boulder didn't have a master's in finance degree. And, uh, and I, I just started investing. I was investing with my dad, managing family capital um, for a number of years. I ended up uh, in 2015, I went to uh, University of, of Oxford and did my uh, MBA there, uh, executive MBA degree. It was a two-year program. And, and then when I, while I was there is when I kind of got the idea that I wanted to, to manage outside capital. And uh, I've been managing our you know, personal, you know, personal account and family money for a number of years at that point. Um, but yeah, so, you know, 2007 is where I really got into it. And then we had the crisis, which was an interesting time to be, uh, to really cutting your teeth in it as an investor, because I mean, so many things happened so quickly. And I think- Talk about, uh, talk about uh, a learning experience. Right, and I, 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 I wanna say it was Seth Klarman maybe that I heard say this once, that you can tell a lot about somebody's philosophy in investing to, if you ask them when they got into the business. And like, so getting in in 2007 and eight, it was, I think that's made me more value oriented just because you can see how cheap, you've seen how cheap things can get. And, uh, but yeah, that's when I, I really cut my teeth and, uh, and just never looked back. And uh, to this day, I, 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 I mean, every day I'm learning something new. I'm trying to, to grow as an investor. I think the people that are really good at it, that's constantly, I think I've heard uh, Munger say that Buffett is a learning machine. And, and I think that that's what you have to be if you want to do this. And, and, and to be a learning machine like that, you have to love what you do. And so I, when people ask me, you know, should I get into finance? Should I be an investor? And it's like, well, look, um, if you can't imagine yourself doing anything else on this planet, then yes. And that's how, that's how it was for me. And I remember when I was in graduate school way back when for history, I was not enjoying it. And I remember my advisor uh, who was... Uh, a, a really great historian named Fred Anderson at the University of Colorado. He, he, he used to say that to students. He'd say, if you can't imagine yourself doing anything else in life other than being a professor of history, then you shouldn't be doing this because that's what it requires. 
And when I asked myself that question with regards to studying history, I knew the answer was no, I, that's not how I saw myself. But if I asked that same question about finance, the answer is 100% yes. I love what I do. I couldn't imagine myself doing anything else on this planet other than analyzing companies and, and running a, a hedge fund. So, yeah. No, for sure. But you know what? What's really interesting about your background, and I think a, a Jamie Catherwood from from OSAM would probably agree with you with his, you know, with Investor Amnesia. I'm sure you've seen his Sunday reads and stuff like that. Is that having that history background is really an incredible wealth of knowledge to bring into investing, because it, as we've seen with various crises and all these other different things, you can look a lot to the past. Yeah. to kind of figure out what maybe or could or most likely will happen in the future, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think history gives you a perspective. Uh, uh, I think, you know, I studied during my, my senior year, I, I wrote a, a senior thesis on soldiers during the Re American Revolution. And the, the thesis basically looked at how, I read a bunch of uh, diaries, war diaries, essentially, and, and tried to get an understanding of their um, they're, they're how they can see how they conceptualized the war at the time that they were fighting it and writing in diaries. And then I, I analyzed a bunch of pension narratives uh, from the 1830s. So there was a pension act. Uh, I think it was 1832 ish, something like that, that basically if you were a Revolutionary War veteran, you could go get a pension, but you had to go give a, a like a, a deposition on your experience. And so you have a really rich body of knowledge on these pension narratives. And I compared the two to try to see how their understanding of the war had changed. And it was fascinating because I didn't realize at the time that I was going to be so involved later in life in behavioral economics. But I, I, I've gone back and read, you know, my undergraduate thesis. And I'm like, man, a lot of the things that I see in terms of how um, current environments shape narratives and shape how people uh, interpret events. I, I was tapping into it back when I was a senior because that's exactly what happened to these soldiers during the American Revolution. Their, their understanding of the war had been influenced essentially by the, the, the history of early America and, and the way they understood and looked at the war as old men reflecting upon it uh, differed vastly from how they looked at it when they were fighting it, um, actually when they were actually fighting it. And so I think the more I've studied history, the more I've realized that it is so intertwined with so much of what we do. And in terms of understanding uh, the capacity for human beings to just make mistakes uh, and the capacity for human beings to not understand the role that randomness has in our lives. It, you know, Fooled by Randomness by Taleb is one of the best books ever. When I go back and look at history, I see, I see instances of it all over the place. And so I think it really reinforces, in a way, my own beliefs uh, in terms of how economies operate, how, which at the end of the day is how human beings operate uh, when they actually are in the trenches making a decision. All right. Okay. So one last follow-up because I got to ask about this thesis. This is very interesting. I mean, yeah. how did how did they how did their perception of the war change from when they were a soldier to when to then in the 1830s? It's fascinating. Yeah. Who, so, else, who else writes about that? That's yeah, that's incredible. Right. I mean, it's it's it kind of maybe it's probably a weird topic to write about. But so when they were fighting the war, um, and I'll try to be quick because I could talk a lot about this, but I'll, I'll try to be really quick. So when when soldiers were going through the experience of fighting the war, they they were very much they understood things through a very religious mindset and um, people probably don't realize this, but a lot of uh, people that were actually charged with fighting the British took a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Cos they believed that the American revolution had a very cosmic significance in the sense that they were God's favored 
people to win this war and and that the the the, the Brits represented tyranny on on earth and so when they were fighting they were constantly searching for signs that God favored their cause essentially and you saw it in the way they wrote what they talked about they were very reflective on connecting their experience um, with this religious element um, that implied a, a ton themselves. of uncertainty yeah, like yeah something bigger than themselves yeah. Right. This was something that was bigger than themselves. And there was uh, there was just a lot of uncertainty that they were. You could tell by reading this that they were very uncertain as to whether or not God did, in fact, favor their cause. Cut two in the 1830s. Uh, so not unlike our current environment, the political environment um, in the uh, in the early uh, 19th century was very polarized and and there was a huge competition among the 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 the, uh, the Whigs and I forget the other the party I'm, I'm rusty on my history but they were going back and forth trying to to frame who are the true patriotic the, who which party was the true patriotic part party of the country and they each party embraced revolutionary veterans as we're the party of the revolutionary war we're the party of the veterans so all these veterans who lived in obscurity for most of after the war and they 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 they, they, they were poor impoverished they didn't get any any love if you will now all of a sudden they were celebrities because they were both i mean both parties were really trying to embrace them and they took on that mindset of being a celebrity so when they talk about their experience in the war it was completely through the lens of how they had been portrayed by the media and it was not like hey we were really freaked out we didn't have a good understanding whether or not we were going to win or lose and man every day i was trying to just make sure that uh, the good lord favored our cause it was we knew all along yes we were as virtuous as everybody says we were it was it was you know so they, they just it was almost like they forgot about how they actually felt at the time and they totally embraced this uh this narrative that the two parties had had basically um, painted of them, and and it it makes sense. I mean, I think in the paper I talk about like uh, one of the examples I I, I gave was uh, there was a guy. Man, if I didn't know where to talk about this, I would have brought a copy of it. Uh, I'm sorry, it, you brought it up. I had to ask. I love yeah, it. Yeah, no, Felon. There's a I forget the guy's last name. Felon, maybe. Okay. Not Thaler, that's the, we can talk about Thaler or Richard Thaler, but there's a historian, I think it's Thelen or something like this. But anyway, he looked at look memory. It up? I can look it, you want me to look it up? Oh, that's, I, it's all right, yeah, I can. Okay. But, but, but basically, an example he gives in his book is he gives an example of how, if you know a couple that always got along whatever, and then you learn like, oh, uh, Bob and Linda are getting divorced. All of a sudden, you'll sit there and be like, oh my God, wait, that didn't make any sense. We thought they were the happiest couple. But then what you do is you go back and you start remembering almost with a different mindset. And you're like, wait a minute, do you remember the time that this happened, the time that this happened? And you kind of reframe everything that you've known about these two people through this new piece of knowledge, which is they've gotten a divorce. And it makes you completely, your understanding of them prior to getting that piece of news was completely different than your understanding of them after you got the news and you go back and you remember in a very selective way so we have i think as human beings very selective memories and and the way that we remember something that happened in our own lives is is is, is if you kahneman talks about this in the in his uh book thinking fast and slow at the end of it he talks about the experiencing self and the remembering self i think is how he frames it i might have the terms wrong but basically saying that 
the world that you experience when you're actually experiencing it is often completely different than the world that you remember. Um, and that 100% is what I found analyzing these, these two sources of, uh, of uh, the diaries and the pension narratives that the, the experiencing self of, of revolutionary war veterans differed greatly from the remembering selves. And I think that's something that affects all of us. Um, I mean, the parallels, the parallels between that and investing, I feel like we could go on for hours. hours. That's a great look. That's a good setup right now. See, I'm glad we went there. You know, look, here we go. (laughs) This is about to set you up. So, okay. Okay. So, so you found it. So, all right, getting back to Mm -hmm. your history a little bit, your history. Okay. So you, uh, go to Oxford, you finish in 2015, right? And that's when you decide to then found Thorpe Abbott's, correct? I, no, I started uh, my MBA in 2015. I finished it. Uh, okay. I think technically we did our last course in 2016, but I didn't actually officially graduate until 2017 because of the way the graduation schedules there were. But yeah, it was like sure. 2015 to 2017. Gotcha. Okay. So, so what was that experience like then starting your own firm. I mean, this is, that's kind of a big step from just managing, you know, family money and maybe a little bit outside capital to now it's like, okay, we got the firm. Let's right. go. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, the, the, I would say when you're just investing like your PA, your personal account, all you're having to focus on is the investing side of things. When you're, when you're starting a hedge fund, um, you need to run a, you're running, you're a businessman at that point, you're running a business and you need to, set up a business in a very specific way. You need to think about uh, your own culture. You know, what kind of culture do we want to engender at Thorpe Abbott's? How am I going to incentivize my team? Um, what's the best legal structure for the, for the entities? Do I want to do a Cayman fund? Do I want to do a BVI fund? What are all the regulatory differences between the two? Um, what are the tax consequences if I have investors coming from the UK and the US both, you know, does it make sense to do it in one place more than the other? All these things that are kind of, uh, I would say, in addition to the actual, what should I buy and sell decisions? So I, I, I guess at first it was like, you really have to have two hats if you're a fund manager. You need to have your investor hat, which is the most important hat. But you need to have your, um, I'm a person running a hedge fund hat because you have to raise capital. You need to think about branding and marketing, although you can't really market directly, but you need to think about uh, what do I want uh, my firm to be, um, what's our key differentiating factor and, and how do I explain that to investors without uh, boring the crap out of them? Because, you know, investing can get very wonky sometimes. So all these things. So it really, it was, it was about kind of, and I've learned more about analyzing business. And I think Buffett has said this, but I've learned more about analyzing businesses having now run one because they're just little things that you just don't realize when you're on the outside looking in. But when it's, it's almost like if you, if you want to work on an engine and learn how to fine tune an engine, it helps if you've actually built one or two because you know how all the things work and they're interconnected. So I feel yep. like the big thing with, with starting a hedge fund is that I'm really, I'm building a business. I, I'm, I have a very good understanding uh, of how incentives work, um, having laid out an own, my own incentive plan and really thought through all the steps. So I think that that was a big difference, but I, I, it was something that made me grow uh, as an investor, but as a person too. Um, worse. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, look, there's, there's no greater experience than I I can speak for myself as growing a business. You know, it is 
It is. I mean, it, it's still it's on stressful. You know, it, it's stressful. Fun. It's on you. It's all on you. You never, you never, people are like, well, yeah, I mean, today it's what? It's 2.30 here in Charlottesville. Uh, I have a call uh, at 4.30 on, on some stuff on investment we're looking at. And then I'll probably be done at 5.30. I'll probably be home by six. So it's like, I'm too bad, right? But the problem is I'll be home at six, but my mind is still going to be going probably at least till 10 o'clock because I'm going to be thinking about, uh, well, this one specific investment we're looking at, I'm going to be thinking about all these things. So your mind never really turns off when it's your own business because you're, you care about it. It's passionate. Whereas, you know, I think the first job I had out of college was in sales and it was easy. At the end of the day, you clock out and you're like, I'm Check done, out. man. Adios. Yep. See you Monday. You know, uh, let's go have, uh, have a fun weekend and, and you just literally put it out of your mind. Uh, right. Whereas with, uh, when it's your own business, there's none of that. That's for sure. All right. So let's dig into the, the firm's uh, investing philosophy a yep. little bit. You know, can you tell us a little bit about that? And then what strategy do you use to actualize that philosophy? Yeah. So uh, I think my, so when I first started studying finance, I, I went through a phase, uh, didn't last very long, but a phase where I really embraced theoretical finance. I really, I, I did. I, I, I thought it was, I really kind of fell in love with the mathematics of it. And it was very elegant, you know, understanding, you know, even though we all know the capital asset pricing model isn't a perfect, um, perfect model, it, it doesn't uh, explain the cross section of stock returns very well. It still was just intuitively such an awesome model in my mind at the time. And I was, and, and I, so I, 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 I did for a brief period. I was very, you know, I was trying to, I was in the portfolio optimization, all this stuff. But then when I went out into the real world and actually tried to think that way, you realize how inadequate it is for how, where the rubber meets the road. And, and so pretty quickly, I, I became obsessed with understanding how theoretical asset pricing and finance breaks down in the real world. And, uh, and, and, Obviously, anybody who's familiar with behavioral finance, behavioral economics knows that in large part, that's kind of the study of why uh, theory and, and practice differ so much. And so we quickly, even before Thorpe Abbott's, I quickly became a very behavioral investor. Once I realized that all the, the stuff that I had learned, not all of it, but largely a lot of it needed to be unlearned and to be, or at least augmented with, with how people really behave. I became pretty obsessed with behavioral finance, behavioral economics, and, and I learned as much as I could about, about that as a subject matter. Uh, and so the, the founding philosophy of Thorpe Abbott's was very much uh, behavioral finance in nature in the sense that um, what, our view is that, look, absent mispricing, um, I shouldn't have a job. I mean, we, what we should all be doing is what the academics tell us to do. We should just be owning very diversified portfolios um, and uh, in the ratios between, you know, equities and fixed income of some sort that reflects our risk tolerance. Uh, but we shouldn't try to pick individual securities. The only what reason that anybody would want to spend their entire lives analyzing a, a company is because they have a fundamental belief that mispricing happens. And so, we really quickly became, or I rather, when, when I really got into um, becoming a, a full-time investor, realized that I need to be better than anybody in the world at knowing why mispricing happens and how to find it. And that really was the obsession for me. And, uh, and to understand why mispricing happens, 
we can talk more about that in a minute. I don't want to ramble on too long, but but it's it's a very behavioral thing. And 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 uh, and what you want me to talk a little bit about like the the big point for me, or is that coming? We we yeah, can do that. Well, I, no, that's I, yeah. you, it's it's funny because I mean you I mean I sent you the question ahead of time, so you know that my next question was really having to do with with the you know you sent me your investor letter that I went through mm -hmm. and it's it's fantastic because it really outlined what your strategy and your approach is and and the one line that stood out to me at, at the outset was and I quote here if you're going to outperform the market you must understand mispricing end quote so you know you're you know let's do it right now give us that yeah. master class on on what you mean here and how does understanding mispricing help generate alpha yeah absolutely so yeah so um, so if you think about why a market efficiency should work, it should work because crowds are supposed to be wiser than the individuals that they comprise. And so uh, one of the examples when I was at Oxford that, uh, that uh, uh, I had a professor of economics there, Mungo Wilson, brilliant guy, probably the best professor I've ever had in my life. And he would give examples of uh, these experiments that, that, that people do where and that you could run them any number of ways. You can, uh, ask a large crowd. I think the famous one is actually took place in England um, sometime in the 19th century where um, a, a guy brought a steer. It was, like a, it was at a, a county fair, like at a stock show. And he brings a steer up on stage and he asks the crowd to guess the weight of the steer. And the first time, if, if you do that and everybody's, you know, basically, uh, and you can do these experiments multiple different ways, but if you do it the right way, which is don't anybody talk to anybody else, just come up with a guess write it down on a piece of paper and put it into a bucket, right? If you take all the guesses and you average them, right? It's almost always extremely close to the right answer, right? It could be the weight of a steer. It could be the number of pennies and some, you know, the huge 50, you know, 50 gallon drum. It could be, it could be any like, you know, what's the weight of, of, of uh, 10 army tanks. I mean, whatever. It could be any kind of random question. If you get a large enough crowd, and they all are independent in their guesses, if you average those guesses, it's almost always gonna be extremely close to the right answer. Why? Well, everybody's guess is the right answer plus some error term. And if you have enough people and the errors aren't correlated, they should cancel out and you're left with something pretty close to the right answer. Now, if you run those experiments, uh, those experiments and run them in a different way where you inject bias, you know, maybe you have an expert who yells out what they think or you allow people to talk. All of a sudden, the experiments completely break down and the average is nowhere even close to being right because all the error, the error terms are no longer uh, uncorrelated. They become correlated. And so market efficiency in a really uh, it, it assumes that we're all rational, optimizing um, mathematicians of, of a certain sort. And so basically, if you, you know, the market is wiser than any individual, because if we're all rational, independent, uh, optimizing machines, then we will be in the situation where everybody's guess is the right answer plus an error, and then the errors won't be correlated, and the market price is going to be pretty close to the intrinsic value of the security. However, we know that wisdom of the crowd should work, but it breaks down because bias gets injected, systematic bias. It has to be systematic in nature that skews everybody's answers in some wrong direction. And so to me, that's what causes mispricing. It's when systematic bias has, has basically 
taken hostage of everybody's uh, independence in terms of how they, they, how they um, come about thinking about um, what the answer to some question is. In this case, what's the intrinsic value of the stock? When bias basically hijacks everybody's views and, and shoves them in one direction, that creates mispricing. And so our view um, has been to focus 100% on, on understanding how we can find that because I, a lot of firms, they say, look, let's go find great businesses or let's find very cheap stocks. And I think that's admirable. But if, if there's no bias, then it shouldn't be mispriced, right? And bias can come in a lot of ways. It's not always obvious. Um, you know, so uh, the podcast that we did before, uh, Jeremy Deal was on there and he, he's a big growth investor. And he and I have had long conversations about how high growth companies get mispriced and it happens. But you need to understand, um, basically our view is that the root cause of alpha in the market is buying something that's mispriced. And so we believe in starting from the point of let's go look for mispricing as opposed to let's go try to find this type of business or this type of business or I'm bullish on this industry. Our view is completely different. It's like let's, let's start by looking for systematic correlated errors in the markets because we, when we find that part of the market, those companies are more likely to be mispriced. And then once we have that subset of companies that we think are more likely to be mispriced, now we go and do our fundamental bottom-up analysis to find out whether or not they really are mispriced. And so our view has always been starting almost from the opposite end. So instead of trying to figure out or, or starting with uh, either really cheap companies or expensive companies or growing companies or whatever, it's like, let's start by trying to identify mispricing. And, and then once we identify that subset of the market, that's the most promising part of the chessboard, then let's dive into those companies and understand what's going on and try to figure out if they are mispriced or if they're not mispriced. So now it makes perfect sense why then the next part of this letter, you then go in depth on your search strategy. Because at the mm -hmm. end of the day, like that's what it comes down to is that if you're gonna find mispricing, you have to optimize, well, how are you going and finding it, right? So, right. Can, so, so like I said, you made a point to highlight the firm's emphasis on creating a search strategy. You know, how does the way you search for investment opportunities, how is that more than half the battle when it comes to outperforming the market? Yeah, so I- uh, And then I, also, uh, yeah. sorry, one, one, and then as a, as a second part of that question is then what is your strategy to then find companies that are mispriced? Of course. Okay, perfect. So I, I have to give credit. Uh, so a big influencer, uh, influence, influencing figure in my life uh, was Bruce Greenwald at Columbia University. Uh, he used to run the value investing program there and I was fortunate enough um, to get to go do the executive education version of that way back when, when I was really ramping up as an investor and learning a lot about um, different investment styles. And so I went and spent a week in New Hold York. On. And way back when is not that long ago. Right? Okay, sorry. I mean, like, it's not way back when. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm 41, so it's, it was, you know, this, was, this would have been 2009 or 10, 11. No, it might have been a little bit later, 12. I can't even, I have to go back and look. Maybe it's like 2000, might have been 2012 actually when I went and took that class. But, but anyway, something Thanks. like that. It, it was back in the day. Uh, and, and Bruce was and is a big uh, proponent of, uh, of search. And I had never really thought of like the importance of a search strategy until I took his course, but it really made, made all the sense in the world. And, and, but then what really drove it home for me is 
uh, I actually was in New York uh, at a Columbia event separate of that. This is after that. And I, I heard Joel Greenblatt give a talk. And in that talk, he talked, he gave this analogy um, about a, a restaurant. And he said, you know, if you're driving down the, the, you know, the highway in middle America and you pull over at a really, you know, random truck stop and you just randomly pick a meal off the menu, the odds of you randomly picking something that's really good um, may not be that high, right? It's not, I mean, not, not to talk any trash about roadside diners, there's some really good ones, but if you're just, you know, at a, at a random roadside diner in the middle of nowhere, the odds of randomly picking a really good meal are probably not that great. But if you were to go to a, a, a three-star Michelin restaurant in New York City and then blindfold yourself and randomly pick a meal from that, the odds of you getting something that's really good are almost guaranteed. Why? Because you're in the right restaurant. So you're, 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 how well you pick, we, we think about it like, well, if you, if you ignore the restaurant you're in, you're ignoring a big part of this process, which is getting situated to pick among the, the best potential ideas. So for us, a search strategy is like getting into the right restaurant. Uh, if we're in a restaurant of the most promising ideas, uh, it's a lot easier to pick a winner. It's like being in that three-star Michelin restaurant than if you're um, in, in the middle of nowhere on a roadside trying to pick a, a good meal. So that's well, kind of like, I'll let you, you had a follow-up there, so I'll let you go. Well, ahead. I mean, you know, let's say, you know, now... I love this analogy only because it features one of my favorite shows, which is diners, drive-ins and dives. But now yes. let's say, you know, now let's, let's use, let's put that in there and let's say that's an analogy for leveling the playing field to find potentially companies that are, will generate even more alpha or, or mm -hmm. be even bigger winners. And so you go to that roadside diner that, yeah, it has a lot of crap on it, but it has maybe that one, that right now that's why they're now featured on the show you know and yeah. that like yeah i mean how does how do how do you think about that if we it's make me hungry right now it's almost lunch yeah i know right i'm, I'm luckily <laughs> i ate lunch right before this so uh, <laughs> i guess i would uh, not to run with the restaurant analogy too far i, I don't want to overdo it um i don't want to overcook it as they say uh, but uh I, I guess okay so let, let me let me frame it this way okay. let's say if you have two analysts okay one analyst and both analysts are going to be equally um, intelligent, equally knowledgeable in terms of uh, finance and, and valuation and all that. And they even have equal um, psychological traits in terms of ability to be contrarian. So the, the, these two analysts are completely 100% the same on every metric. But for one of them, you give them a subset of, let's just say, 100 of the most interesting potential mispricings. And the other one has to sort through thousands of companies. If you have a really good subset, it's some of the, a lot of the heavy lifting has already been done simply because you are already looking at a menu that's been refined and man, these are the ones that have the most potential to be mispriced, uh, which if you believe in what I'm arguing from before, that's giving you the, the biggest upside in terms of alpha generation. Um, so to us, the search strategy is like getting into the right restaurant. It's, 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 it's instead of sorting through, uh, I mean, and, and, and some people say, oh, all you're doing is running a screener, which is not what we're doing. Um, but it's to try to get uh, into the, the, um, the areas of the market 
that are most likely to have true mispricing. And when I say true mispricing, there's, there's, there's mispricing and there's superficial mispricing. There are some things that look mispriced, but they're really dying, terrible businesses that are not mispriced. And so there's that element. But if, you, if, you're, if you're in a part of the market that is the most ripe in terms, in terms of having potential mispricings, um, our view is that you, uh, you can go a lot further in, uh, in really digging into ideas, knowing that you're, you're not following up um, uh, you're not on a, on a, you're not, a you're not going down a rabbit. Yeah. A rabbit you're not going hole, down a rabbit hole. That, yeah. No, I totally yeah. get it. I mean, where it's, it's like, it, look, there's pay dirt probably at the end of like a lot of these. And so, whereas if you're just randomly following up an idea, if it's, and it all gets back, if it's not mispriced, if, if there's no bias affecting the market's view, then theoretically there's not alpha there, right? There shouldn't be. And so that's kind of how, when we think of the restaurant and the search strategy, it's like, look, let's find areas of the market that we think are the most likely to be mispriced. And, and let's look at uh, that subset of companies in a very critical, rigorous way, uh, using very traditional bottom-up fundamental analysis, but, but doing it on, on, uh, on a part of the market in companies that uh, have the highest likelihood to be mispriced. That, that's generally our view on the search. Uh, All right. So- so my nat- yeah. my natural follow up to there then is like well what are the what are some of the metrics that you use that are that will help you find that subsect of the market that you think you think might be mispriced. So uh, yeah, I th- so we we have an algorithm that we've we spent two gosh almost three years developing and and, and going through and going through. So we're not a, we're not a quant fund. We're not algorithmic. We all our decisions are made by by actual human beings. We only use an algorithm to help that search component. So I just wanna be clear. Um, but it's, it's without giving all the stuff that we do away, I, I will say this, you basically need uh, in a very sophisticated way for every company in whatever universe you're looking at, you need to track the relationship between its price and what's happening with its intrinsic value. And you need to look at the speed at which those two diverge. Um, companies that are dying businesses, uh, it, it's a linear process. So value and price go down in a nice steady fashion. If you go to a case study on newspapers, uh, the newspaper industry, you'll see this. Mispricings tend to happen when value is doing one thing. It could be flat, it could be going up. And, and price is deviating very quickly away from it. That is one way. That's not the only way, but that's one way if you're looking for traditional value-oriented investments. You're looking at something that's trying to capture the magnitude and the speed at which the, the market-implied price of a firm's assets are deviating from a, a, um, an intrinsic value estimate, if you will. And you could be a, a discounted cash flow model. There are different ways to do that. But when you see a rapid displacement, it means one of two things. And this is, and just to be clear, if you're, if you're looking to invest in mispricings in like higher quality growthy businesses, there's actually a different way to do this. But this was, what I'm describing now would be a more traditional kind of, I wanna find just companies that are left for dead that shouldn't be left for dead. Sure. Um, you, you are looking for uh, the speed at which uh, the market's implied value of their assets is, has deviated away from what the actual value is doing. And when that happens, it means one of two things. One, either something has happened 
that has caused that that is justified or the market has overreacted to something. It's, it's one or the other. It's not, it's either, either something fundamentally has changed with the business that's caused this massive just deviation or, um, or, or the market's overreacted. So when you, when you're doing this, you want to, and, and it's, you need to be very careful and cause every company has a different history and it's not, it's, it's about the company's, it's about that relationship as it exists between the, the price of a company and the, the intrinsic value of the company. So there's a relationship between the price and the company itself, but then there's a relationship with that company and every other company too. And when you look at huge deviations in these, it's almost like a red flag goes up. And it's like, look, something is happening here. I don't know what it is, uh, but it looks like something is happening. And then when you have that subset, then you have to go in, you have to answer one real question, which is, is what just happened fundamentally reflective of a business whose earning power is never going to be what it used to be? Okay, that's a value trap. Or is the market overreacting? Now, the interesting thing is, is that the statistical probability that you're going to get a value trap when you're looking at something nonlinear is actually lower. Most dying businesses, and it's, it's amazing how efficient the market can be. It's a very linear relationship. You see value eroding over time and you see price reflecting it. So when you have these huge massive deviations away, uh, price away from value, uh, typically that's, it's more likely to be, um, like, by the way, if you just equal weight that portfolio and you don't do any analysis, you do extraordinarily well, like you crush the market, but it's a volatile strategy because there are times when you don't do as well, but, but overall it's a very, it's a very, um, if you wanted to make a quant strategy out of it, I think you could. Um, but when you get these signals, basically our job as analysts, then is to go in and say, okay, what did the market react to? What is the market's narrative of this? And if you know, I talk about economic narratives, narrative economics a lot. What is the narrative here that the market believes? And is it justified or not? And then what we're trying to do is to basically take this subset of, of ideas that we get and we sort out the superficial mispricings because yes, there's something fundamentally really troublesome about these situations from the ones that we believe are true mispricings, which would be the market simply, these are good businesses, they have clean balance, it has a clean balance sheet. Um, they're not facing any you know, major headwinds in their markets, any kind of massive disruption. And yet the market has just locked on to something and it's just, you know, the, the, the narrative has gotten biased and you can see it in the data. Those companies are what you want to own. And I'm telling you, when you own them at the right prices, the alpha that you can get on them is insane. Because these companies, the upside, so the situations that we look at, we're looking for situations where the upside is 2X, 3X, and the downside is if I'm wrong, maybe 20 to 30, 50%, maybe max, right? Your downside is always 100% because unforeseen things can happen. Of course. But right. we're looking for things with just massive skew that we think the market is completely overreacted to. So it takes us to very interesting situations. And, but I mean, I guess to kind of come back to the search component, a lot of that heavy lifting is done by the algorithm. So when we get ideas that cross our desk, it's like, okay, you know, I pull this thing up on Bloomberg, spend a half an hour figuring out, okay, what's the market really reacting to? Ah, let's go. Yeah. And I then can, I can like, just imagine being so yeah. stoked when you see that you do. Oh this, yeah. And you're like, okay. And so just, then ah, my, my, my head analyst, Adrian, we get in the same room. We're like, okay, 
give me the bearish thesis on this. What does the market think is happening? And we go through it and we, we go immediately to the Charlie Munger style of like, I wanna go find out where I'm gonna die. That way I never go there. So we try to understand, we construct the bear thesis first almost. Like, tell me why, if, give, make an argument on why we should short this thing. And then we build that argument because we wanna understand the narrative that's caused this massive deviation. And then, and then we make the argument for why wouldn't you not wanna short it? And then we try to sit there and if you think about it, uh, I heard, uh, actually go back to Oxford. I, I saw David Einhorn speak at Oxford when I was there and he talked about how um, uh, investing is almost like a debate between bulls and bears because he was speaking at the Oxford Union, which is the debating society. And so what we try to do is we try to construct the bear argument and then the bull argument. And we already know that statistically the restaurant we're in is already really, really favorable. But then we go very deep into the idea. And then when, we, when we're happy that we're actually owning a true mispricing, the next thing we have to do is figure out what's the catalyst that unlocks the value. And to us, we like, we have a thing that we call the locus of control. We don't call it, I guess that's what it's called, but um, we want whatever the catalyst is, needs to be within the locus of control of the company. It can't be something external. So I don't wanna own an overlevered oil company in the hope that oil prices recover or something like that. What needs to happen to make this thing mean revert needs to be something the management can control themselves. That's key to us because we, we, we like to be in situations where uh, the fate of the company is dependent upon management action or, or um, um, well, I'd say pretty much the fate of the company is, is not dependent on some exogenous factor that management has no control over, I guess you should say it that way. Right. And so we look for the specific catalysts. What, you know, this is the bull thesis. This is why the market is absolutely wrong on this. And this is what is going to happen to cause the market to realize that it made the mistake. We want to see all of that laid out. And, uh, and then when we, when we, you know, in our core portfolio, we would, uh, we start from kind of an equal weight position, about 20 to 25 of these types of ideas. We don't need to get every one of them right. Um, as long as we are right, that our downside is relatively limited, but the upside is 2x, 3x, you know, big upside. And so that's kind of when we're looking for just, you know, massive asymmetric kind of situations. To us, this is the most exciting type of investing to do because it's a little bit more difficult because you have to sell, right? You're not owning a lot of these because they're great businesses. You're owning them because it, this is a mispricing, which means you need to have a very strong sense of what it's worth and then be ready to sell it when it gets back to there because it's in the kind of company you want to hold. Literally, for, yeah. literally was just going to ask that next question in terms of time horizons because right. what, exactly what you're saying is that you're, you're seeing that there's where it, it, you have an expectation of where it should be and yet you're buying it right here. So depending right. on every name in your portfolio could have a completely different time horizon where you're like, okay, if I'm reading this correctly, the catalyst should take effect maybe in six months, but this mm -hmm. other one, it could be two years, you know, right. to, to realize that, that net gain, you know, that yep. you expect to see, you know, so how do you guys think about time horizons? Is it more just like, okay, just be ready to sell at this point, even if it continues to go up from there? Yeah, I think so. We with every company, we you know we we have a basic. Uh, I won't say it's basic, but it's it's it, we have a standard procedure we go through in terms of placing a value on it. Uh, and so we we have kind of an earnings power valuation. We we actually do use DCF to some degree, um, although we're very conservative in how we use it. But we have, we have an idea of what we think the company is worth, or a range, I should say. We never believe that you can say specifically what a company is worth, but. Um, 
so I'll give you an example. I, I won't name any names um, because we're actually um, in, in the process of exiting an investment right now, but I'll give you, I'll, I'll just give you some numbers. So company we looked at was trading, I think at the time we made the purchase, sub $10. And we had the view that there was, there's headwinds to the business, uh, but the market had been so pessimistic on whether or not, uh, or, or on the company, that even if the, the main headwind that it was facing continued, uh, it was still vastly undervalued. So we said, look, let's just assume that the, the problem facing this company doesn't really abate. It doesn't get worse, but it doesn't abate. What does that margin profile look like? Uh, let me go ahead and model this out and figure out what that implies in terms of cash generation and what that company is fundamentally worth. We did that between 12 and 13 bucks. Okay, well, what happens if the problem they're facing, if they're actually able to solve it and we get, we get back to the margins this company historically was able to earn? And the number there is like, it's worth closer to 20, okay? So we're coming in and we're saying, all right, well, look, and then we always take a very deep look at the company's uh, capital structure to, to ensure that, uh, you know, uh, that there's not any uh, meaningful uh, financial risk in terms of leverage, which there wasn't for this company. It actually was a net cash, had net cash on its balance sheet. So what happens? Cut to, we paid around 750, a little maybe 760, something like that for this. Stock rallies back up to a range on our first level of price target. So this is what the company is fundamentally worth if the problem is not solved, but doesn't get worse. Well, we got there, okay? And so that was like about a 50, a little over a 50% gain on this company in a short period of time. And this happened in about two months, a little, little over two months. So now we have a decision to make. Okay, well, do we see fundamental improvement upon the issue that we're worried about, which would imply this company might be worth closer to 20? Um, or do we see that persisting? And what's the risk reward that we're at right now? You know, at it, 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 7.50, the risk reward was amazing because really I don't need much of anything to happen. But now I actually need to see some improvement. So the risk reward dynamic has changed. And how do I relate that to other ideas I have at the moment? And ultimately the decision we came to was that we have ideas that have more clear cut catalysts that are even cheaper. So let's go ahead and take our 50% and change gain in this name which we got over a very short period of time and let's re recycle that into investments that we think have more upside with clearer catalysts in the short term. Um, so, so that's a long way of saying, what do, how did we do that? Well, we, we established intrinsic value estimates around a couple different scenarios. We saw where we were kind of vis-a-vis -vis those scenarios and what the implied risk return relationship was at that point. And then we made the decision that actually I can get better risk return selling this idea and putting it into, um, putting it into new ideas that we think have more upside. So that's kind of how we think about it. Whereas if you're owning a wonderful company that can compound, you just, you know, own it, right? You don't have to worry about any of that. Just right. own it. You yeah. go to the beach. Whereas I'm with sorry, this, you really need to follow developments. So it's, oh, that's dude, the trick. You got me fired up. I mean, it's just, it'd be so fun <laughs> just on a daily basis. Like click the, sorry, I don't mean to say it like this, but you click the button, see what's going on. You're like, oh, sweet. Okay. So now we, now we know what we're focusing on today. I mean, is there ever a right. time you, you know, you do that process. Sorry, I don't mean to, again, I don't mean to simplify it that much. You click the button. All right. You see the same company in there for like a couple weeks at a time. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, do, like, does it, is it, I mean, you know, you talk a lot about trying to take bias out of it, but do you almost see kind of a confirmation bias when you do see the same company, when you 
click through, you see that, you know, does that come through sometimes? And you're like, okay, well, we now have to look at this. Even if it wasn't something that when you built the bearish thesis, you're like, eh, okay. Then um, not. I mean, any time, well, uh, are, are, you, are you saying that like, if we see a company that we constantly see in there and we don't like, but it just keeps showing up? Yep. No, we're pretty good about that because we, we, we have, uh, we, we kind of, I don't know if that's the right way, but we kind of have a, uh, these companies kind of take on personalities, right? So it's like, you know that there'll be some small cap company that, that will show up every, I mean, there's a lot, I'm not saying one, but there's several that, that show up uh, regularly often. And, and, and it keeps coming back up and you know why it's in there, right? You, under, you understand when you, we, you know, we've, we basically designed this algorithm so we know what triggers it, right? And so I'll see a company will come back in and I'll be like, look, I know why the algo is picking this thing up. And yes, it looks really cheap or it looks like it's had another big deviation. But I also know that this is a fundamentally challenged business and it's, it, this is just not anywhere you want to be. Right. And so uh, we're pretty good. Uh, I'd say we're really good about steering clear of, I mean, give me an example. I mean, so it's, it's the classic, it's like the Bed Bath & Beyond story, right? I, I, I went through a, a period where it's like every value conference I went to, there was somebody that was pitching Bed Bath & Beyond as a value investment. And it's, it was the same story. It's like, ah, oh, look at this juicy cash flows, all these things. And you look at it and you're like, that's just a dying business. It just, it is. And I mean, I don't know, maybe somebody's in a bottom ticket and make a killing, but just not for us because once we determine that the headwinds, because look, you need two things to happen for a mean reversion. Not only does the problem have to be solved, but you need the market to believe it needs to be solved. And then the market needs to believe that it is solved and it's not going away. When you have companies that are fundamentally chase, uh, facing technological disruption, I, it's, it's just tough to say to see that, that, I mean, if a company like Best Buy, right, where impulse purchases are a huge part of that business, which you don't impulse buy online to the same degree that you do when you go to the store. That was one thing that always struck me about that company. Like how many people go to Best Buy and they, they go in there and they, you go for a bath mat and you end up getting all this random stuff because, oh, I could use that, I could use that. Well, you lose that online, right? So when I looked at, a, a, and, and, and you know, full disclosure, we don't own or anything Best Buy. I'm just using it as, I'm beating up on it because it's a great I had a, example. I had, a fu I had a funny Best Buy anecdote. I remember a couple of buddies of mine back in, back in the day, like we stayed up all night to be the or first not Best Buy, online. I'm sorry, Bed Bath & Beyond. Best, Bed, Bed, oh, Bath, you're Beyond. talking about, oh, I thought, okay. Sorry, not Best Buy, sorry. I, did, I, did I say Best Buy? I meant Anyways. Bed Bath & Beyond. So <laughs> Bed Bath & Beyond, but uh, I want to hear your Best Buy anecdote. Is, anecdote oh, as well. uh, uh, oh, well, no, it was just like we were trying to stay up all night and then to be the first ones online at Best Buy for Black Friday. And okay. like, we were so tired at that point. I remember going in and just being like, I don't, I don't know what I want. Like, why am I, what the $5 DVDs? Do I really need this? <laughs> right, right. But anyways, that was a side note. I'm sorry. No, Bed yeah. But I, so Bed Bath & Beyond, yeah. So I mean, you have a, you have a business that is being disrupted um, by, you know, online retail. You have a business that is, if you really look at it and you look at how, you know, just the nature of the purchase decision at Bed Bath & Beyond, you know, being um, uh, where you go in to buy one thing, you end up buying a bunch of other stuff yep. uh, because you just see all this random stuff you want. I mean, that, that business model just doesn't transfer well online, right? Uh, and so once you make- It depends on who you ask. But yeah, you're in well, that I mean, to me though, 
Yeah, I guess I just don't see it happening. And I just, I just to me, when I see that company, and I can tell you algorithmically, when you when you throw it through our system, it it has every sign of being a dying business. It is a straight up linear decline. I mean, the relationship between value and price is just just straight, you know, straight down, you know, for years. Um, to me, that's signs that the market is efficiently figuring out this thing is worth less and less and less. And so. Uh, for us, when we see companies like that that continually show up, we know it's like, oh, it's, it's that. The other thing too, with a lot of this data, I, uh, you, you kind of get to the point where like, we use Tableau to visualize a lot of our data. And Tableau is a, uh, and not to plug yep. Salesforce here, because the, but the Tableau is, is, is a really good pro, uh, program to, to, to uh, visualize data. And we find visualizing data helps uh, with the analysis process. But you start to get a sense of what these things look like. I mean, you, you get a sense of what a dying business looks like when you look at it through our lens. And uh, you'll kind of, I mean, they almost fall into like categories. It's like, oh, it's another one of those. It's another one of these. And you just know, and you know to avoid them because those just always end up in really bad places. So we've gotten pretty good. I, I would say that when you're looking at the world through our lens, you make as much money by avoiding the crap as you do by picking the winners. And so just being able to brush off all the crap that's getting, hey, here's a mispricing, here's a mispricing. It's like, nope, nope, that, nope. And you're swatting them away and you're left with the, <laughs> the, the, the real, the real yeah. gold, right? So that's kind of how we look at it a lot. So, so I wanted to ask you real quick about behavioral finance because you mentioned it at the very beginning and you already you kind of talked about it already a little bit. Mm -hmm. But, you know, real quick, I mean, how does that now play into your approach when you're looking at potential investments, you know, I mean, like I said, you kind of already went into it, but maybe yeah. do a nice wrap. Yeah, I, I would say, so I mean, it plays a direct role in terms of how we are searching. Um, but there's, I, I guess to take a quick step back, I think um, if you study uh, traditional fin financial theory, asset pricing theory, you learn how important this idea is of uh, rational, um, or sorry, rational agents, but then expected utility theory, which basically says that human beings make decisions to maximize their expected utility. So, uh, and, and typically in finance, utility is associated with an amount of wealth. What really struck me, and, and by the way, this, uh, this is why the CAPM is the CAPM, right? The marginal utility, it's that curve, right? The marginal utility of wealth is, is higher, that, that curve is steeper, in low consumption states as opposed to high consumption states, which is why companies that throw off cash flows in all states, in lower consumption states, are, are supposedly worth more than companies that, that are more cyclical and you only do really well in high consumption states. Because we're told that the marginal utility of wealth um, is higher in, in, when income is lower, right? That's, that, that's fundamentally what drives the CAPM. But what amazed me is when I, I read Kahneman and Tversky's studies on prospect theory, uh, where they say, look, here's the problem with, well, they say a lot of things, but one of them was like, here's the problem with um, expected utility theory. People's happiness, which is basically what utility measures, is not necessarily just a function of a level of wealth, but it's the path at which you got there. And the example they give, or you, anybody can give, you say, look, if you say, so, so the CAPM assumes that like, let's just take $10 million as a given level of wealth, that basically, everybody is equally content at that level of wealth. But if you had somebody that was just worth 100 million, that made a really stupid investment, and now the net worth is at 10, 
And then you had somebody else that was worth 1 million that apparently bought Tesla or whatever, and now they're worth 10 million. They're both at the same place. However, they came from completely different directions. One person just lost 90% of their net worth. The other, you know, just 10X'd it. So to say that these two people have equal utility is crazy, right? It makes no sense. So prospect theory to me was a big driver of why I really became obsessed with behavioral finance. And not that prospect theory is, is part of behavioral finance. It really came out of, uh, it was Kahneman and Traversky. It's been more used for behavioral finance. But if you believe that expected utility theory is, you know, imperfect, then all the asset pricing models that are based upon it are also all screwed up. So, so where do we use behavioral finance? So I think it's very interesting to have this view of the world that the majority of what you're taught in business school in terms of how, how theoretical asset pricing works, what if I were to tell you that most of it's all wrong? Like it's all wrong. You need to go learn it so you can unlearn it. And if you realize that a lot of it is, is just based on really bad assumptions, because it's easier to make those assumptions because the math is easier and more elegant, then all of a sudden you can realize how messed up financial markets potentially could be in terms of mispricing. And so, so for us, we try to understand and use behavioral finance to understand how people are making mistakes and then try to leverage that knowledge of how mistakes are made to, to generate alpha. So that's kind of how we use it. But at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's about, uh, why human beings um, uh, are not the rational utility maximizing agents of financial theory. And uh, I think anybody that sees how people really behave, it's not a huge stretch of the imagination to, uh, you know, imagine that people don't act in this perfectly rational way. And, and, and then finance theorists would say, of course, not everybody does, but then there's an arbitrage opportunity to which I would say, well, there are, there are limits to arbitrage and you have, uh, you, you have instances when you see massive systematic bias affecting prices. And so our goal as a fund is to go out, understand how all that works and to find it and then to pull out all the profits we can uh, by doing that in terms of going in and finding mispriced assets, buying them below their intrinsic value and then watching, uh, watching mean reversion occur. Listen, I don't think you realized that when you wrote your thesis uh, in back in grad school, you know, looking at, American uh, American revolutionary soldiers and their difference in thinking about their experiences. I don't think you would, I don't think you thought then that that would end up being your framework for basically how you built this algorithm to find misprices. Let's, let's be real here. Definitely was not on my, it was not top of mind <laughs> when I was a senior at undergrad at University of Colorado Boulder. I was, yeah, was not thinking that way, but kind of funny yeah, how I, that works. Yeah. Dude, see, I told you, I told you that story that that was going to tie in exactly to what your current philosophy and finance philosophy is today. I, I told you, I knew it was going to be like that. I do. I think I, I should have listened. I should have, because I didn't, <laughs> I, I'm serious. I would have brought it. I saw the copy of this thing at my house. I should have brought it. And I could have read up on my undergraduate, uh, beefed up on my, my knowledge, my undergraduate thesis a little bit before the interview, but uh um, yeah, got, no, we, I got think, the, we got the point. No, you did a good job. Yeah, you got a good job. Yeah, and I, I think, I, I just think that, uh, good investing uh, to us is understanding uh, how other investors make mistakes. I, I think if I had to sum it up, um, because if other investors don't make mistakes, then there are no opportunities. If every investor does the right thing, then everything's efficiently priced. 
And I would probably go back and I'd be writing more history papers and not doing this, right? I mean, so, but, but if there is opportunity, that opportunity exists because other people are, are making mistakes. I mean, it's, uh, uh, it is a zero sum game investing. I mean, uh, it, if you're buying something, you know, somebody's taking an opposite view to you and one of you is gonna be wrong. Uh, so you really need to understand um, how mistakes are made. So A, you can avoid them because you don't want to make mistakes, but then you know, right. taking it another level, if you understand how other people make mistakes, then you can understand where to go to take advantage of those mistakes. All right, dude, well, we're rounding the bend here. Yep. Save my, my favorite question for last, what, what investing experience would you say impacted you the most thus far in your career? Man, uh, it's hard to say any one. I mean, I think the financial crisis, obviously, 08, 09, uh, was, was a big impact on me to really see um, how cheap things could get. But uh, I would say, I would say that week I spent in uh, New York studying uh, at the Columbia program had a huge influence on me uh, in terms of the importance of search and thinking about it. The thing that amazed me about that week is that no, everybody I was with kind of blew off the search component to a degree. I won't say they blew it off, but for some, for some reason that, that, that week just stood out as like, I need to develop a search strategy. Like nobody really is doing this. I need to think more about it. And that really, I mean, everything I've learned about behavioral economics since then has been really designed and geared to, to develop that side of our business. So I'd say that week in New York was probably one of the most influential moments or periods. Uh, but the financial crisis, experiencing that was hugely impactful. Uh, and uh, I'd have to say, you know, the time in Oxford too was pretty, pretty spectacular. Um, I, I think what Oxford really taught me uh, and something my investing had lacked up until then was, uh, you know, I think finance geeks like, 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 like myself, we, we, we can get obsessed with numbers, but there's actually another side to business that you really need to understand, which is the qualitative, um, the qualitative, qualitative element of a business understanding whether or not a, a business's uh, incentive structure is aligned with its corporate strategy, things like that. I think I really got a better sense of when I was at Oxford. Um, so that's helped a lot. So that's not one answer. I don't have one magical moment. I'm going to kind of throw a few out there um, that, that have been a big influence on me. Well, I think that's a great way to end it right there. So Jeff, where can my audience go and find more information about you and Thorpe Abbott's Capital? Yeah, so we have a website, thorpeabbotscapital.com. Uh, we uh, a lot of information on there. Um, and then there's an info at Thorpe Abbott's Capital uh, that people can reach out to uh, with questions or whatever. Uh, and yeah, I, I would go to the website. We're, we're going to be um, revamping the website probably at the end of this year, just make it a little bit uh, more sleek, I guess. But, um, but all the content's gonna stay basically the same and it's, 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 a, good, it's a good starting point. Uh, and then yeah, info at thorpeabbotscapital.com. Uh, is is the is the where is the place to go uh, to send an email to? Awesome, well, dude, Jeff, this was so much fun today. I really do appreciate. Yeah, it. I learned I learned a lot today. I I realize I, I know so much about Oxford now. And I'm telling you, <laughs> you got to go visit, dude. You got to go. And, when things uh, and open if, up, when things open up, yes, when it's safe to travel, uh, Oxford is is got to be on top of the list. It's uh, and then if you if you're there, you have to go punting. That's the big thing where you push the boats. And, get a big stick and you're on the boat, go hunting, like go to the hunting, football yeah. field, go foot, go to the football field and kick the go, ball. And yeah. <laughs> you can do that too. You can bring one with you. So, um, but, um, uh, yeah. Well, thanks again, Robert, for having me. I really appreciate it. No, thank you, man. Talk to you soon. 
Okay. Thanks. See you guys. All right. And Jeff, for full disclosure, do you own or not own any of the names that were mentioned in this interview today? Uh, we spoke about Bed Bath & Beyond, uh, yes. which I do not own. <laughs> and I think mistakenly I mentioned uh, Best Buy, which we don't own either one of those names, no. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.